Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So says Paul, but he never had to deal with the the nuclear saber-rattling of someone like Putin or North Korean bombs falling close to the shores of an ally or an American midterm election. Paul's words here remind me of the words of another saint. You recall these words, some of you, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. That's Julian of Norwich, a 14th century Christian mystic who claimed to hear these words spoken to her directly by God while she was meditating. She managed to find a place in her own mind and heart and soul where she could affirm in the midst of great suffering even that all all will be well. Well, she's a saint, right? And if that kind of contentment is the qualification for sainthood, I suspect many of us will find it hard to be counted among that number. A biologist once said, a human being has always been a specifically anxious creature with almost untapped capacity for worry. And Colin Hightower said he sometimes experiences moments absolutely free from worry. He said these brief respites are called panic. (laughs) Worry for many is really a kind of free-floating anxiety, a sense that there's some hidden menace right around the corner waiting to steal our happiness or our stuff, the anxiety about the potential loss, ironically, is the very thing that makes so many among us unhappy most of the time. Another good saint-like Christian, Dorothy Day, said, I have learned to live each day as it comes and not to borrow trouble by worrying about tomorrow. It is the dark menace of the future that makes cowards of us. I've always been drawn to that quote. Worry can make cowards of us. Can cause us to fear for our own skin, so to speak. Can cause us to curl up inside ourselves and not venture any risk. In these days, right before an election, many of our Politicians, it seems, are banking on creating just that sense of anxiety, making us fearful of what might happen or might not happen if the other person is elected. Then you toss in the uncertainty of war in Ukraine, the ongoing disruptions of climate change, the rise in inflation and economic woes that seem to always be right around the corner. And I've got to tell you, Paul and Julian of Norwich and even Dorothy Day, they seem a little naive. Just a little. But we are not the first generation of Christians to experience this kind of anxiety. 
The earliest Christians, we are told, always lived right on the edge of persecution. They were an anxious lot as well. You can tell by the tone of Paul's letters, he's constantly telling them not to worry, not to fear. Like here, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, he says. For the early Christians, what was that primary worry? It's pretty simple. It was the worry that Jesus was not going to return. That time was passing away, that the disciples were beginning to die off. The imminent return of Jesus, which was felt so viscerally by those earliest Christians, that imminent return of Jesus that the first letter to the church at Thessalonica had proclaimed quite openly was now being updated by Thessalonica 2.0. A second letter with a new message. Don't be alarmed. Be patient. It's a hard message to hear. If you're expecting Jesus to come at any moment, it's a hard message to hear. And some in the early church were having none of it. They were ready to interpret everything going on around them as a sign that Jesus was returning in their lifetime. Now, Paul, some scholars say, may or may not have been the author of this second letter, but doesn't matter. The message is clear. Paul or someone writing in Paul's name is saying, don't fall for it. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or spirit by those who come among you saying, the end is near. They might be under the spell of some prophetic vision by spirit or by reason and logic, by word, or by letter, maybe even a fake letter purporting to be from Paul himself. This letter says clearly, don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Now, some of you in this room will remember the year 1988, and some of you may not have been born in the year 1988. I'm looking at our director of youth ministries and a little booklet that made the rounds called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. It was all the rage in that little area where I served a church at the time as a student. I remember seeing church signs as I would drive down the country roads saying, Jesus will be coming between September 11th and September 13th this year. On the church sign. The author of this treatise, Edgar Wissenant, calculated using complex mathematical formulas that Jesus was coming during Rosh Hashanah, the, new, the Jewish New Year. TBN television station halted its regular programming those three days and instead aired shows about the rapture with helpful tips for non-Christians on what to do in case Christian family members disappeared. That was the the time when you would see bumper stickers that said, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, or some of my friends who put on theirs, in case of rapture, can I have your car? (laughs) 
And when September 11th through 13th came and went, he revised his numbers and announced that Jesus would come back at 10.55 a.m. on September 15th. And when that failed, he moved it to October 3rd. And after his few weeks had transpired, Wissonet finally saw his error. He claimed that he had made a slight miscalculation of one year because of a fluke in the Gregorian calendar. Jesus was actually going to return during Rosh Hashanah of 1989. Wissonet published his discovery in the final shout, Rapture Report 1989. The time is short, he said. Everything points to it, a direct quote. This publication was subsequently retitled The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1990, and and was retitled every year subsequently, 91, 92, 93, 94. Somewhere along the way, he dropped from the scene, but not before his original booklet sold more than 4.5 million copies in stores. So in preparation for this sermon, I thought I'll go online to see how many more years this thing went. And I would not advise that you Google Rapture Report. It sends you down a trail of present-day fear-mongering, present-day fear-mongering that made me want to write this scripture text in the comment section Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Worry, it works that way, you know. It can paralyze us. It can cause us to be taken in by people who hope to profit from that paralysis. Peddling easy answers to complex problems. And it, and it, if it's almost heretical, maybe it is, and I don't ever use that word, because it tries to say that God's kingdom is somehow dependent on us. When we know that the kingdom of God is not dependent on us, that the kingdom of God will come no matter how much we fret or predict or try and create it in our own image. We do not have to be quickly shaken in body or mind, we are free to live by the light of God's coming day, free of fear. It was Jesus himself who said, no one knows the day or the hour. On this All Saints Sunday, we remember that our own congregation has been here since 1811. We were here for the War of 1812 when a young republic was threatened. We were here in 1861 when the bloodshed that was the Civil War visited our town in a momentous battle that cost over 6,000 lives and our then sanctuary was used as a makeshift hospital. We were here when World War I came along, the war to end all wars followed in short order by a Great Depression that wiped out entire families in our congregation. And then another war in which the fate of the world hung in the balance. We were here when our nation was attacked by Pearl, at Pearl Harbor, when we entered that war. 
How many of our own congregation lost children and grandchildren, fathers in those wars? We were here when presidents were assassinated, when the civil rights of African Americans shone a spotlight on the South. And we were here when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed just three hours down the road. And the whole nation felt as if it was sitting on a powder keg. We were here September the 11th, 2001, when terror visited our shores and wars and rumors of wars seemed to go on forever. And I do not recite this litany to in any way diminish the times in which we now live or the importance of all of the issues we face but rather to remind us that we do have good practice in what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, to live out of and walk in the grace that produces what Paul calls eternal comfort and good hope. Good hope. In every period of our history, there were faithful saints who often during very difficult times worshiped God, had their babies baptized, practiced grace, bestowed mercy, communed at the table, and in ways large and small refused to give in to the fear of their day, refused to become cynical or hopeless, continued to proclaim that the way of Christ provides a way through fearful times. We remember them on a day like today, not to engage in sentimentality, but to draw strength from their witness, to remember that we are not alone. We remember them today. I think about Gideon Blackburn, the Presbyterian missionary who started this congregation, and many more up and down through Alabama, Kentucky, in Middle Tennessee. And then I also think about Bob and Alice, Ruth and Wesley and Tom and Nick and Ian and Tony and Lillian and Diane and Sydney. And the ones you're thinking about right now. The ones that we name out loud today the ones we see hanging on these white ribbons. These names rise up like incense, great cloud of witnesses cheering us on in our own day, summoning us to embrace that same grace, that same eternal comfort and good hope that we may run our leg of the race here and now following Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, to whom be all glory, now and forever. Amen.